Off of a weekend that has seen fights from Las Vegas to England to the Middle East, we are here to recap all of it on the Fight Freaks Unite Recap Podcast. I am the somewhat coherent, somewhat rested host of the program, TJ Reeves. I am fresh back myself, literally back only hours ago from Munich, Germany, where the Tampa Bay Buccaneers of the NFL have won the first ever German regular season football game uh, in that country, beating the Seattle Seahawks. So I have traveled back with the team. Happy plane ride back. We've gotten back in the middle of the night. I've gotten a little bit of rest. And I am joined by our insider. We love our partner, our content partner, Dan Raphael, Fight Freaks Unite, Substack, BigFightWeekend.com, to go over the weekend and everything that happened as we come off the weekend. Uh, good to be back with you. It has been a whirlwind. You and I talked in the preview mode on this podcast feed Friday from Germany. That's Can I just say that seems like it was two and a half weeks ago, and it was like three days ago, but we're all good. We're here. We're here for the peeps. We're here for the fans. We're here off the weekend. I know it's a little delayed, folks, from what we normally do, but the host was on a plane for 10 hours. We've worked it out to be able to tape the podcast and come out a little later. Nonetheless, Mr. Grayfield, I heard that laugh. Good to see you. How are things off of a busy weekend? It wasn't blockbuster, but there was a lot this weekend. Yeah, just just so because we're, for obvious reasons, we're going to be a little late getting this out. That's why they need to subscribe because they don't have to worry about getting it. You know why, TJ? Because you're going to get some kind of notification, Dan. What are they going to get? They're going to get a bell. They're going to get a banner. They're going to get a light. They'll get a ding, maybe a vibration if they're lucky. Something that tells you brand new Fight Freaks Unite recap podcast is out over the weekend. We typically are out late Sunday, early Monday. It's a little later Monday. Preview mode with the Big Fight Weekend preview, usually out late Thursday, early Friday. You're going to get but both there's, of those. there's a silver lining to this one being a little bit later than usual. Yes. Do you know why? Because I, it means I that we can why. now have a conference. Because usually we would tape it uh, beforehand when mm-hmm. this, was not, this was not over yet. We now have a chance to discuss the epic fight between Floyd Mayweather and your boy, Deji. My boy, Deji. And I still can't name any of his stuff, but he's still <laughs> my boy. So we, we will get into that exhibition. We'll get into the Janabek win, all of these different things. Again, thank you for finding us. Make sure that you're following, subscribing, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Find Dan's Substack. Find the Big Fight Weekend website where we've got recaps, we've got previews, we've got news of the week, everything that's going on. Let's begin uh, just real quick with the Janabek card. That was the most prominent one in the United States. Top rank ESPN Las Vegas show. He wins. He does not win by knockout over England's Denzel Bentley. Let's go right to that main event. I have not. I've only seen a couple of clips of the fight. I've read your recap of the fight. I was surprised he did not at least stop him later in the fight. Give me more Dan Rayfield on the Janabek win. Well, Janabek went in uh, on a fight where universally thought that this was going to be a very easy early knockout for uh, Janabek, given that he has been doing that to his opponents and that Bentley had been stopped by a far lesser opponent in like three rounds and just didn't seem to have the stuff to be at the top of the world's contendership. A lot of people were talking up Janabek as the boogeyman. Uh, we've learned we've learned a couple of things about what occurred on Saturday night in Las Vegas. Number one, Janabek is a good fighter. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Janabek is going to beat guys like Denzel Bentley all day long. Uh, but it's not necessarily going to be easy. And he's not the boogeyman that a lot of people were making him out to be. He's, again, he's an excellent fighter, but he's no Triple G. He's not at that level. I mean, I use Triple G as the example because he was a boogeyman in the middleweight division. They both happen to be from Kazakhstan. Um, but uh, Janabek, he's still going to be a problem, I believe, for a lot of these fighters uh, you know, in and around the middleweight division. But it's not like he's going to just blitz everybody out there. And when I, when I saw, when I watched his performance, against Benley, which was not a bad performance. It was just not what I think a lot of people expected. But when I saw the way he did perform, it sort of made me scratch my head and, and shake shake my head, scratch my head, that how in the world did Demetrius Andrade basically give up his title to avoid fighting the mandatory against this guy? Now, I'm a guy who has been a Demetrius Andrade supporter for a long time. I do believe he's been you know, criminally avoided by other top fighters uh, over the many years, but he did the exact same thing uh, and avoided uh, Janabek on purpose and went and left the weight class in a fight where he could have had it. Top rank was willing to do it. They just didn't want to maybe pay him as much as he wanted. In any event, he left the division and it left uh, Janabek with the full title. And now the, the silver lining for his performances 
because again, it wasn't a bad performance. I'm not criticizing the performance. It just wasn't the explosive dynamic thing that we thought it would be that we've seen him deliver against some other a better grade of opponents than Denzel Bentley is that now because of that, maybe there now will be fighters that will be more willing to fight him. As an example, you got Jaime Munguia, who's going to be fighting uh, uh, at this weekend. He, if he wins, is the mandatory challenger based on what was ruled at the WBO convention. Uh, Jaime Munguia has spent years fighting nobodies. Now maybe if he saw that performance or his team at Golden Boy and Zanfer saw that performance, his trainer Eric Morales saw that performance, they might say, you know what, we can hang with that guy. We can beat that guy. We can win the middleweight title. And they may uh, agree to do that match. And if you ask me, Janabek against uh, Munguia, that's, that's a pretty interesting fight. So his non-outstanding performance may actually lead him getting better fights. But in any event, he won a unanimous decision. Uh, you know, Bentley fought very, very well in the in the early going. He won the first four rounds. Uh, I'm sorry, Janibek won the first four rounds on all three scorecards. But Bentley, a real big comeback starting in the fifth round where he then banked some rounds. Um, and in the end, you know, he hung in there and gave a performance that, that was better than anybody expected. He elevated his career, even if he didn't win the belt. And uh, he came off as a likable guy in his interviews before the fight and after the fight. And we'll see if he can uh, build on this loss. We talked in the in the buildup. Would he just be happy to be there? Kind of seemed that way in the comments. And again, full disclosure to the audience. I only have so much brain space and so much time. I've not seen this full fight. I've only seen a couple of clips. Did he just take Janabek's best stuff early and then it just settled in? And that's the dynamic of that fight where where Janabek realized, okay, wait a minute, he took a couple of big shots from me and I'm not going to be able to get him out of there. How did that unfold in the first few rounds? Yeah, I mean, he did He did take a couple of good shots. You know, the thing about Janabek also is, uh, although he's a good puncher, he becomes, I won't say easy, but you can figure him out because there's not a lot of alterations in what he does. It's very basic in terms of like the one-two, you know, straight left hand, uh, jab, occasionally the uppercut. Like, there's not a lot of things you have to, they're good things you got to worry about, but it's not a multitude of things you're worrying about. In other words, if you're fighting like the prime Manny Pacquiao, you got about 50 things to worry about. Against the prime Janibic, you got about three things to worry about. They're all good and they can all hurt you and they can all do damage, but uh, you don't have a giant laundry list of things to be on the lookout for. And Bentley was intelligent enough and competent enough and with a good enough ability to take that shot that he was able to take them. He did uh, take some shots that maybe – you know, he didn't take at full blast because he was able to just move a little bit out of the way where he did get touched, but it wasn't like with the full effect of the shot. Um, and I think after you survive that for a few rounds, uh, you know, your confidence grows. He was like, you know, this guy, he really isn't the boogeyman. I'm not going to stick my chin out there, but I haven't really felt anything that I feel like is going to be absolutely devastating. Um, and he kept doing his thing and he was able to box a little bit and defensively he was competent and uh, the corner, you know, told him to pick it up after the fifth round. He did exactly that, and he started to win some rounds. Um, you know, the way that the cards were, it was 116 uh, to 110 on two of the cards, which they didn't really the, – the corner didn't argue with at all. Uh, it, was the, it was the wide score of the 118 that the trainer thought was sort of kind of unfair, and it was sort of hard to uh, argue with that. That seemed to not give him enough credit for what he was doing in the fight. So – you know, again, if you can ever build off of a loss, that's the kind of loss you can build off of because he didn't get absolutely drilled like a lot of people thought he he would. Um, and by the way, I said 116 to 110. I meant 116 to 112. Right. Uh, the third the third scorecard was 118 to 110. There were no knockdowns. So, um, you know, kind of a forgettable fight, but it was the biggest fight we had over the weekend. And, uh, you know, Janibek will move on. And uh, it really remains to be seen what can be done with him in the future, TJ, because the other champions, which he was calling out for, our Triple G, who's got two titles, who has mandatories, right. probably isn't going to want to do that fight. Not a huge money fight. Probably doesn't want to fight his own guy from his own country or whatever. And you got Charlo, who's got the WBC belt, who's been inactive and, you know, is going to have a mandatory when he comes back also. The, the point is, a unification fight at 160 right now seems awfully out of the realm. So, of what's there, if Munguia wins, that that's like the most appealing okay, fight. Okay, so I wanted to pick – that's exactly where I was going. So just give me the quick answer. <laughs> He's on a different promotion, on a different network. Are we going to go through that whole thing again, or could they make this fight? What's the likelihood they could make this fight if Janabek wants to fight Jaime Munguia, the former 154-pound champ? I actually champ think it's been if, sitting there if, forever. If, uh, look, Janabek will have no problem doing the fight. I don't believe his management would have any problem doing the fight. I don't believe Top Rank, uh, who is Janabek's promoter, would have any problem doing the fight. 
Uh, it's going to be whether or not Jaime McGee is interested to pursue that mandatory uh, opportunity. I do think that it's going to be at some point, look, Jaime McGee has fought like seven stiffs in a row, but not only in stiffs. I mean, just not the type of fights we want to see. So the good thing is if you, if he opts for the mandatory, A, top ranking golden boy, once the most bitterest of enemies in the sport actually get along these days and they are perfectly capable of making deals. They've done it numerous times. Sometimes sending their guy to the ESPN, sometimes their guy to the zone, et cetera. So I believe in, from that standpoint, it's not an issue. It's not going to be like a joint event. It's not that big of a fight. So they'll figure that out. I do think it's possible though. And the other thing is if they, if they want to both sides do the fight, but they just can't quite come to a business agreement, then it goes to a purse bid because it will be a mandatory. And then whichever promoter has the highest bid will be on that broadcast platform. So again, I believe it's going to be the ball in the golden boy slash Mungia court. Do they want to pursue that fight? If they do, the fight can absolutely be made. Good enough. Rest of the top ranked card, just real quick from you. Sanicia Estrada did win her top ranked debut, longtime champ. Tell me how that looked. Again, at full disclosure, folks, I have been in Germany. My TV, my TV channels were all in German. A couple of, of them in French. Lots of Bundesliga soccer. Uh, I'm blocked out from being able to find the top-ranked show on ESPN+. Plus. I guess I got to up my VPN game on my computer to be able to find <laughs> that for the United States. But I've seen recaps. I've, I've read your recaps, et cetera. So give me the rest of the card, including Estrada winning and anybody else off the top-ranked card before we move on, Dan Rayfield. Sure. So Sinisi Estrada, super bad. Uh, first fight in 11 months. Uh, coming back, signing signed with top rank in July. Uh, defended her title against uh, a very obscure opponent, Jasmine Gala Villarino, who not very experienced, but had had experience fighting on the road in terms of outside of her own country of Argentina. And she gave a great effort. I can't I can't argue with that. Uh, she just was outclassed. She lost a shutout decision uh, for a hundred to 90 on all three scorecards kind of fight. It was entertaining to watch. He gave a good effort. Siniasa Estrada gave a great effort. Uh, they swapped some good punches. It was a it was a sort of a crowd pleasing fight, even though it was one sided. So she retains her uh, WBA Women's uh, Strawweight title, 105 pounds, and uh, you know she's got the look of somebody that can you know perhaps uh, move the needle a degree in terms of women's boxing. She had fans there cheering for her. She had a lot of fans that had come in from LA where she's from to watch that fight. Uh, you know, make that couple hour drive from Ve- uh, out to Vegas or even a quick airplane flight. So, uh, you know, for her, it's onward and upward, uh, you know, who she's going to fight in the future, what other champions will be available to her. It remains to be seen, but for the time being, uh, you know, if she could have scripted the, the debut on her new contract, um, she did a good job, big national audience, uh, you know, available on ESPN plus to everybody who has it and, uh, you know, good for her. She looked good and it was a good fight. And, and as far as the other fights, yes, you mentioned on the undercard, uh, look, top rank always loads up their undercards with prospects. They got it. As I've said many times, they have the best prospects in boxing mm-hmm. um and in this particular card there was uh i thought there was the two that were most notable there was the fight right before uh estrada in the co-future there was the uh, robert garcia trained lightweight raymond uh danger Morataya, who i've been high on for a while he's 16 and 0 now with 13 knockouts he's a little bit more advanced he's 25 it's time to get on the stick and let's get moving um but he looked good in a, in a fight against miguel Contreras. he stopped him in the sixth round it was an eight round scheduled fight um you know, he stopped him. He's a dangerous fighter. He has a lot of experience. He spars with great opposition in the Robert Garcia Academy in uh, Southern California. And to me, it's time for him to take that next step to fighting a contender type opponent. Um, the one knock on him, if there is one, is that sometimes he might fight down to the level of his opposition. He needs to find a little bit more consistency. But that's the same kind of knock that you could use for every young prospect, mostly uh, as they learn the game. So I think Martin Slaw has a bright future. He's to, to, to take a, a uh, his his uh, nickname, he's dangerous, um, you know, and he's hungry. And uh, top rank is absolutely loaded at the lightweight division, so there'll be opportunities for him. And uh, that was, uh, again, another solid performance from him. The other one that people may have been paying attention to was the the uh, top rank debut of the 18-year-old lightweight Fernan- uh, Fernando Vargas, the, the, the former junior middleweight champion, his son, Emiliano Vargas, only 18 years old. Uh, he had turned pro earlier in the year. Uh, on a Triller undercard. He now signed with top rank. So this was his second pro fight, first of the contract. Um, He's exciting. He's tall and he's long and he's got good power. And he's one of the three fighting brothers. Too many, uh, they say, I I haven't necessarily seen it yet, but the the insider word, so to speak, is that he's the most talented of the three fighting brothers. He's the youngest of the three fighting brothers. In any event, look, he got in there. He took some shots maybe way too many than he should have, frankly, but he scored an absolutely scorching knockout with a nice hook in the second round. And, uh, you know, he's obviously got good raw power for a young kid like that. His biggest thing is get the reps, get the practice, get the, uh, 
get the gym work, work on defense, which is something that fighters can improve on. And, uh, you know, they'll bring him along slowly. Uh, top rank is excellent when it comes to taking a young kid like this, getting all the fights he needs, moving him slowly or fast, however they, you know, however they think is best and getting him to what they call the promised land of a title. And, uh, they've got the best matchmakers in the business and, uh, they've got their work cut out for him with Vargas, but again, he's young. They'll mold him. Um, they're not in a hurry. Some promoters, you know, when they sign a fighter, they've spent a lot of money to sign them and they want to get that money back. And maybe they put them on a little bit of too, too fast of a track. Top rank's not like that. They're willing to wait. If it takes 10 fights, if it takes 20 fights, if it takes 30 fights, um, you know, they're going to do what it takes to get it done. Okay. So good recap of the top rank show there as we move on here on the fight freaks unite recap. I saw these clips on Saturday night before having to get some sleep and get ready for the Buccaneers Seahawks game in Munich, Germany. So I am aware of what happened and how it happened, but I need the intel. The Montana Love main event with Stevie Spark of Australia. This was not Hulk Hogan firing your boy Iron Sheik or Roddy Roddy Piper over the top rope in pro wrestling. And I didn't even think it was that malicious on the flip over on the top rope where Spark, where Spark lands on his feet. Odd, weird, yes, but he landed on his feet going over the top rope. And then suddenly we have a DQ in the ring and a Spark victory so this is the match room boxing to zone card the main event in cleveland loves hometown he gets dq dan pick it up from there uh was it justified do you believe that that was a disqualifying situation there and you think it was justified or what is your opinion on how that main event ended i see it two different ways one is it absolutely, David Fields, who was the referee, who I have always held in high esteem, is an excellent referee. You can go back and find lots of fights he's done that have been superbly officiated. For example, he officiated the fight between uh, Anthony Joshua and Vladimir Klitschko, for example. That's a big heavyweight championship fight, 90,000 Wembley. Good referee. A lot of action in Atlantic City and New York City. He was on the main event in this card. So my only, it's not really a criticism. He was 100% within his rights to disqualify Montana Love. Uh, if you watch the video, it's very clear Montana Love purposely drives him into the ropes. Um, let's back up a little bit earlier in the fight. He's, he's losing the fight to Steve Spark, who was a big underdog. Montana Love had been knocked down cleanly in the second round under a flurry of shots. A nice right hand got in there, put him on the deck. He finds himself behind. He's losing the fight, absolutely. Get to the seventh round. They have an accidental, or I'm sorry, I take it to the sixth round which is when all this stuff unfolded. And you have a situation where they have a terrible headbutt. Montana Love suffers a cut over his eye. Uh, they call a timeout eventually. Field takes him over to the doctor who examines it. You can audibly hear on the DAZN broadcast, Montana Love tell the doctor or the referee like that he can't see out of the eye or that he's having – I forget how he phrased it, but it was very mm -hmm. clear there was some type of impairment of his vision. Um, in 99.999% in of – uh, fights, if you hear that come out of a boxer's mouth, automatically the fight gets stopped. Yep. They just cut it. That's it. Fight's over. Now, in that particular case, um, you know, it would have gone to the scorecards because four rounds had been completed and there's a good chance he loses a technical decision. The doctor does not recommend that the fight be stopped. He tells the referee, David Fields, let's watch it for another minute. You can hear it on the on the audio. It's mm -hmm. not like we're you know you can actually hear exactly what. And we said. went over this by the way before with the situation uh, with Tony Weeks and the <clears throat> PBC main event with Morell and your boss Anuli. Elaborate again. It's ultimately Fields' decision. Yes. But he's going to be influenced by that doctor too. Just take us through that whole dynamic. Oh again no, no, in this, about in this I mean, fight. If the doctor had said, uh, you know, uh, Dave, that that's it, let's call it off, then Fields would have waved his arms and would have stopped the fight. That's what referees do. If the doctor says stop the fight, they stop the fight. And it's like, I, I honestly can't, I can't think, I can think of an example, and we've discussed this on past podcasts, right, right. Like, but there are definitely examples where a corner will ask for a fight to be stopped and throw in the towel and the referee ignores it. I can't say off the top of my head, I can think of a single example in my, you know, 40 years plus of watching boxing where a referee has ignored the the advice of the doctor to, to stop a fight they look to the doctors to stop a fight you know the one example that jumps out to me i remember uh there was a lot of conversation in the corner and this was the rematch between antonio margarito and miguel cota where margarito had a, a busted up eye and he had a, a surgically repaired eye coming into the fight that was a big point of concern whether they were going to even license him and i can remember when they were all gathered around margarito in his corner after the round ended and you got uh, one of the great referees of all time steve smoger you know, Doc, what do we want to do? Doc, what do we want to do? 
you know, he was going to, he was going to do what the doctor said. Yep. And so in this case field, uh, listened to that ringside physician in Cleveland and they allowed the fight to continue. So Montana love now knows his back is against all he's been on the deck. He's losing the fight. He's having trouble probably seeing out of the eye. The doctor is basically giving him another minute and there's some desperation there and they engage very briefly. And then he just basically almost like he was, you know, tackling a football dummy <laughs> basically rams Steve spark into the ropes. And as field is trying to break them, clearly trying to break them apart and telling them to stop and whatever he gives them the uh, forearm to the chest basically and forces um, Steve spark over the top rope. And, and there was no table there. It was on the other side of the right. ring. There was no commission table. A lot of times you might fall out and you're on the commission table or the broadcaster table. This was one of the two sides where there's no table. And he basically fell right to the floor. Now, thankfully, Steve Spark is an athletic guy. He basically tumbled over backwards. And, and as Corey Erdman, who was doing the blow-by-blow for DAZN, who does a hell of a job, I might add. Yes. My boy Corey, give him a shout-out. Yes. And, and remember, this is not scripted. Corey with a great call. He goes, and he sticks to landing. Just like gymnastics. Was, it's a, a great call, call because he landed on his feet. Did it surprise you that he did not hurt himself? Yes. Flipping over and landing on his feet, hurt an ankle, hurt a knee. Cause that could have happened. And spark was like, okay, I'm climbing back up the ring steps. Are he we did still it, by the way, when he went yeah. out of the ring, it was right in front of Eddie Hearn in front of his mm -hmm. seat. So you can actually see Eddie stand up when spark is on the floor, uh, sticking the landing as our boy, uh, Corey Erdman said, <laughs> great. Anyway, call. He, so he, he nonchalantly walks up the ring steps to get back in the ring. Now, the reason that it didn't continue is because before, before he finished tumbling out of the ring, before he got to his feet, before he nonchalantly stepped up the ring steps and walked back in the ring, David Field had already stopped the fight. He had already ruled it. DQ. DQ so was no, waving in the ring. It's over. There was Well, he wasn't really waving. He was walking uh, love to the corner. And then when Spark got back in, he walked him in. You can hear him tell the corner like he's disqualified and so he, he couldn't really go back on that so again you asked me like what did i think about this mm -hmm. to go back to the beginning of the conversation i get why david fields scored you know ruled it a dq i can't argue with the dq it was perfectly legit what montana love should not happen it's, it's only fortunate that steve spark was okay uh you cannot force a guy out of the ring like that um so from that standpoint, I don't have a problem with it. If I have one criticism, it's not really a criticism. It's sort of like a, 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 um, a critique, a, a friendly thought. Uh, so this is not in any way anti-David Fields, who, again, I think is a tremendous referee. What he could have done, and I've seen other referees do this in the past, and I'll give you my example in a moment. Take an extra few seconds to assess the situation. You can always call the DQ. There's nothing that says you have to do it right that second. He can look to see what happened to Spark. If he messes up the ankle or he's on his back and there's a problem, of course, you immediately are going to stop the fight. But if you look to your, you know, out of your eye to the side of the ring and you see the man is standing there like he's perfectly fine and he's coming up the ring steps and all that, that whole thing took like, you know, a few, five seconds. I mean, he was up and about him, you know, into in just immediately he's up the ring ropes. At that point, you can you can do a couple of things. You can call your commissioner over and ask him about, you know, or talk to him what, what you think you're going to do. You can certainly call a timeout and you can take a two point deduction for a flagrant foul and carry on and warn him. You can certainly do that. Or you can maybe decide, okay, I've seen a few seconds and I've still decided I'm going to call a DQ. So let me give you an example famously because we I, was, I, I know it's, I know what you're are we going to, are we going to Holyfield Tyson too? Of course we are. All right. Because in that audio, which is phenomenal audio of the whole thing with Mills Lane and Mark Ratner, the former executive director of the Nevada Commission uh, back in the 90s, he comes over to Mark Ratner after the ear bite, the first one, and mm -hmm. says, I'm going to DQ him. And Ratner's look is tremendous in the moment. Like, you really want to do that? Are you sure? And then he kind of thinks about it. Because, again, it's ultimate, as we keep talking, it's ultimately up to the referee. And Mills Lane kind of thinks about it. And you can go back on YouTube and hear this audio and hear this exchange. And he That's exactly the example. Two points. He decides two points. So I'm just wondering, again, everything is different. Could he have not field? Certainly he could have. Just said, two-point deduction. That's an intentional thing you did. I'm not going to DQ you, but I'm going to take two points. You do anything like that again, it's over. Because Mills Lane very famously <laughs> – 25 years ago, contemplated Listen, it, gave Tyson a second chance. He bit him again, and that's it. DQ. 
Mills Lane and Mark Ratner had worked together, referee to, to, to director for many years. Mm-hmm. And if you know Mark Ratner, who I've known my entire mm-hmm. career, now does great work with the UFC in terms of their regulatory uh, uh, liaison with commissions. He wasn't, his words to Mills, are you sure you want to do that? Mm-hmm. Was like code for, like Mills knew like, okay, I better think about this. It's kind of like, Angelo Dundee telling Sugar Ray Leonard, you don't have to say a lot of stuff in the corner. You're blowing it, son. Now you're blowing it. Sugar Ray Leonard knows I better get off my rear end Mm -hmm. and go out there in the ring and knock Hearns out because I'm giving this fight away. Like when you work with somebody that long, you kind of get to know uh, the, the, you have your, your own language and Mark Ratner, who was again, and all the people I've encountered in my years of covering boxing is one of the most calm, poised, Mm -hmm. uh, thoughtful individuals you're ever going to meet. I, I never saw him lose his cool. I might have heard him curse maybe once or twice ever. Um, and so in that moment, and by the way, Mills Lane's decision to not disqualify Holy uh, Tyson at that moment and take the two points, that was a much, much times a billion times larger spotlight and moment than what David Fields was dealing with in and significance and, and historical significance. significance, all of it. Yes. So if Mills Lane under that massive spotlight of the heavyweight championship of the world can take a deep breath and and think for just a quick moment, okay. Because you also, again, it's not they're they're the main job of the referee is to ensure obviously that the rules are followed, but the main job is to do the best that you can to ensure the health and safety of the opposite of the each fighter. Steve Spark was clearly not as, as as shitty of a move as it was by Montana Love to push him out of the ring like that. Steve Spark was not injured. There was no danger to him in terms of continuing the fight. And so you have to think about the event also. This is still entertainment. People are still paying money for tickets. You have to think about the, the crowd also. Uh, again, if there was if he's on the floor, if there was a real issue, of course, make the DQ. My only thought here is this. You can take an extra 20 or 30 seconds, assess the situation, and then decide if it's really necessary. Because the, the DQ is a biggest – that's a big call. That's like when you jump in and stop first, a fight on an First loss for love, humiliating yeah. loss in Cleveland. I mean, it's the magnitude in the smaller scale is big for him. I agree with you. But look, ultimately it's up to the referee. Them's the rules. He wants to DQ you. <laughs> It's a DQ. As we sit here and talk on Monday, there's not been an appeal to try to overturn it or vacate the decision. I know Eddie Hearn was upset on Montana Love's behalf about that, about the fact that it should not be a DQ. So that just leads to one more, then I want you to recap the rest of the card, and we'll move on real quick. So so as it stands, Spark is the winner. Do yes. you believe there's an automatic rematch brewing? Is it maybe in Australia where he's from because he came here? Just give me all the speculative stuff you want real quick. Go. Well, Eddie Hearn and, and and the fighters certainly were were interested in a rematch after the fight. So, yeah, I mean, the rematch, it, you know, the, the storyline writes itself, obviously. Um, so I do think it makes sense for there to be a rematch. It's not like there's some other big mega fight out there for Steve Spark or for Montana Love. Um, it makes sense. Uh, and I think that there will be a little more public interest in a rematch. You know, I didn't think about so much the concept of going to Australia, but because, you know, Matchroom Boxing is now doing events in Australia, they just did one. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, that's a market that they've broken into. Uh, that might be something they would be interested to do to bring that fight to Australia. Whether Montana Love is the, you know, going to be willing to do that, I'm not really sure about that. But the notion that the commission is going to somehow review it and overturn it, I find to be absolutely preposterous. It just won't happen. I mean, maybe maybe they'll review it at the request of the uh, Montana Love side. But it's like calling balls and strikes in a baseball game. The referee has the ultimate authority to decide whether the fight's a DQ or not. Um, unless something absolutely unparalleled and unprecedented that happened, uh, that will not be overturned. It's just not. It's not happening. Uh, it's going to stand up as a disqualification. End of story. I mean, it's it's as to me, it's as black and white as possible. Even if I disagree, I don't disagree with the call. But if I did disagree with the call, I know the rules well enough to know that that commissions do not overturn those types of judgment calls. It's not even like they can go to the video and you know and see like you know in a, in a football game, you know, was the arm moving forward on the pass? Was it a fumble? Was it incompletion? There's no video evidence to determine a DQ. It's the it's the it's it's the, the the thought of what's the referee if he decides that it was worthy of a disqualification it's totally up to the referee and David Fields has a as a background as an outstanding referee he made the call uh, again we quibbled with it about should he have done it right away but again ultimately it's his decision so it won't be overruled so is there a rematch it's possible um, in terms of the rest of the card 
one thing it might do is remember going into this card, there was a lot of conversation. Montana Love was the big favorite. He's going to win the hometown fight. The co-feature was Richardson Hitchens, an excellent young undefeated Olympian prospect uh, from Brooklyn, New York, who fought for Haiti in the Olympic Games, who just signed with Matchroom uh, not that long ago after his contract with Mayweather Promotions was up. And the whole thing was Richardson Hitchens, if you win your undercard co-feature, we're going to match you against uh, Montana Love. They'd been jawing back and forth with each other. Richardson Hitchens did win his undercard fight. He looked very good. He totally dominated um, Yomar Alamo, stopped him when the corner ended the fight after eight rounds, gave him a beating, was winning every round. But you tell me if you're a promoter or a fan, frankly, which fight are you more interested in? Montana Love coming off a loss uh, like that against Hitchens or, or even Steve Spark for that matter, or a rematch between Spark and Montana Love. Obviously, it's the rematch. So Hitchens looked good but he's probably going to have to wait a little bit for that fight. So that's what happened in, uh, in Cleveland. It was on paper, not the best card in the world going in as it turned out, uh, maybe not the greatest fight, but certainly a wacky ending. No doubt. All right. We got much to get to Dan standby because we've got a lot to talk about for the fights in England. And we have got other news with a new IBF mandatory contender challenger for Alexander Usyk. While we have a second, we have a sponsor for the podcast. That's our friends at BetUS. You see Dan and I doing the BetUS boxing show. BetUS has a special offer through our podcast. If you are an initial sign-up person, initial sign-up user that's hearing us right now, you're going to get a 125% match bonus by using our offer, our promo code with BetUS, that's BFW22 for the initials Big Fight Weekend and the year 22. BFW22 gets you 125% in a match bonus. Dan Rayfield, you put 100 bucks in on the initial sign-up, you get $200. You put 200 in, you're going to end up or two, uh, $200, $225, match bonus. You put 200 in, you're going to get 250 in the match bonus. And so on, up to $2,500 in matching money, for you to wager with on BetUS on everything, not just boxing, the NFL, college football, college basketball, the NBA, whatever you want to do, use our promo code BFW22. They're sponsoring us here on the Fight Freaks Unite podcast and all of our stuff in November. We encourage them to do that. And again, that is for first-time users. Use our promo code BFW, 125% match bonus right away for you to gamble with. If you're hearing us on Monday, you can do it right now for the Monday Night Football game with uh, the Eagles and the Commanders, Philadelphia and Washington. You can do it with the NFL later on in the week, college basketball, college football, gamble on all the boxing, on all the fights, whatever you want, BFW22 at BetUS. Enter that promo code for us. We would appreciate it, and you will benefit from us, and they're proud sponsors here with us. All right, remaining few minutes, uh, another matchroom or may not have been matchroom card. Another fight in England with Natasha Jonas, women's world champion, Eve Marie Dakar. She won. She won easily. I know you recapped it on your um, uh, Fight Freaks Unite Substack. Also, Ricky Hatton was in the same arena, the exhibition with Marco Antonio Barrera. Again, full disclosure, I have not seen these. I rely on you. Just give me whatever thoughts on the action in Manchester. And we can also morph it into Floyd Mayweather on his exhibition win over... You want me to say it? My boy, Deji. Six-round TKO Saturday night in the UAE in Dubai. Give me the recap of the fights internationally. I was in Munich, and again, there, I, I was not <laughs> to speak it to English. I didn't I didn't get to see it on German TV. But give me the recaps from Europe this weekend. Well, in terms of the boxer card in, in Manchester, Natasha Jonas, I mean, she's a popular figure there, uh, one of the top women's boxers out there. She had the WBC and the WBO titles at 154. They brought over uh, Marie-Yves DeCarry from Canada. She's a Montreal fighter. Uh, and they, they, you know, she was the IBF title holder. They unified the titles. And and not in any surprise, frankly, Jonas completely outboxed her one-handedly, uh, 100 to 90, uh, 98 to 92, and I want to say 97 to 93, unifies the three titles. Um, so a big night for Jonas. I mean, she's she had a couple of losses earlier in her career, but she's sort of been – um, she's, she's like the Phoenix from the ashes, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, she's now at a better weight class for her and she's been doing some work and doing some damage. And, uh, again, popular figure. She, she brings out the fans. She's got a very a bubbly and engaging personality and, uh, she can fight <laughs> and she was an Olympian. Uh, anyway, so she's a three belt champion now and she, uh, she hopefully for her sake, I think she wants to try to go for undisputed and, uh, and collect that fourth belt. And it was kind of a weird thing, as you mentioned, uh, it was technically separate events, but they were in the same arena. Uh, the um, the event that included the Barrera and Ricky Hatton 
uh, exhibition batch. Uh, now they were doing this fight in the AO arena in Manchester uh, for many years. The MEN arena was called anyway. That's like Ricky Hatton's fortress. That's where mm-hmm. he became a megastar. That's where he defeated Casa Zoo. Uh, to become the undisputed junior welterweight champion. I mean, uh, there was no bigger superstar in Britain, in Britain boxing than Ricky Hatton uh, at that time. And so he's been out of the ring for many years, you know, retired in, uh, I can't even tell you how long ago, 2012, I think, or 2011. And Barrera also been out of the ring similar amount of time. They we were did share Barrera 48, Hatton 44. Yeah. It's an exhibition. Yep. Did you get to see some of this? Was it kind of in slow motion as it went along? Or no, was I, it did, I did watch some of it. I did watch some of it. Uh, you know, they, they, First of all, I'll give the guys credit. I mean, they're they're years past their best days. They came in good shape. I mean, they 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 may not have looked like they did at their best, uh, but they they came. They took it serious. I mean, they were there was nothing embarrassing about what they did. They were uh, a little heftier than they were, about twenty pounds heavier, fighting in the basically the middleweight division. Um, but you know, for guys in their in their forties who hadn't boxed professionally for you know over a decade. Uh, you know, you cannot uh, give them anything but credit for doing what they did. But again, it was a friendly thing. Again, they were contemporaries when they were professionals. They were both on the pound for pound list. They were winning championships in different weight classes. Ricky at 140 and 147. Barrera, you know, at 122, 126, 130. Um, and then ended up fighting a few fights later in his career at 135. But so they were never was contemplated they would fight each other. Now, all these years passed and they're back to being about the same size, both not wanting to continue their careers in an official capacity, but still uh, wanting to stay in shape, wanting, you know, enjoying the, the adulation of the fans, making some money, all that. Uh, they did this exhibition. So they moved around the ring for eight rounds. There was no scores rendered. Couldn't even tell you, like, who won. Uh, a lot of jabs. And mm-hmm. basically, it was a fun time. It was a little nostalgia act. And, uh, um, you know, I don't have a problem with those types of exhibitions. They're evenly matched, and no one's trying to hurt each other. And as long as you're a fan that knows what you're getting, uh, they tried to put on a show and I think they accomplished their goal. And in terms of for the fighters, you know, they got a chance to, to revisit what they once did and, and love to do without really putting themselves at risk and also being able to make some money. So good for them. And then you go over to Sunday in the UAE for Mayweather and your boy Deji. And <laughs> that's a whole different story because at least with Barrera and Hat, they were both top flight elite champions for a long time. Now you go to the UAE fight and you got Floyd Mayweather who falls into that same category, obviously retired in 2017, 15-0 all time. Great. Just coming off his summer induction into the boxing hall of fame, but he's not fighting an exhibition with one of his contemporaries or a fellow former championship level fighter. He's fighting a YouTube guy who even, even in the most generous um, description is not really a fighter. I don't take away from his his efforts to become a boxer, to try to box. But he had a handful of am- like two or three amateur fights. He's had one professional fight and you're fighting Floyd Mayweather. Uh, Floyd Mayweather could be like 90 and walking with a cane and probably be able to beat, beat that dude, okay? So, you Although know, he Mayweather- did get hit. He did get hit a couple of times, had a little bit of a swelling under the eye. You wrote that in the recap, but he still did. So- took care of business. It was one of those things where Floyd was clowning around. He was playing to the crowd. It was kind of agony to watch, to be honest with you. I was not that enjoyable, I must say. All right. I did one. I took one for the team on that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was one of those deals where it's like, you know, at any moment, if Floyd Mayweather decides, like, I got to go take a piss, let me get out of the ring, he can knock him out, or I just feel like getting rid of him, whatever. At any moment, he can end the fight. At any moment, he can end the fight. I felt the same way when he was fighting Conor McGregor back in the official fight in 2017. He let him win a couple of rounds. He clowned around, and then he finally got tired of it. He's like, you know what? Screw this, and he knocked him out in the 10th round. It was kind of the same thing with your boy Deji. You know, Deji, uh, you know, Floyd was not trying to hurt him. He, He was throwing shots, but they were, like, to the body, but not with full steam. A lot of jabs. He didn't really target the head with any big time hooks or anything like that. You know, he hit him a few times, but not, you could tell he was sort of not putting uh, all the mustard on it, so to speak. Uh, and your boy Deji, like he was trying, you know, and to his credit, you know, you're in the ring with Floyd Mayweather. It's like, you know, even at this stage, at, at his age, it's still overwhelming uh, for anybody that we facing Mayweather. But he did land a, a couple of shots. He did give a little swelling under Mayweather's eye. And Mayweather said after the match, like, hey, that's boxing. It's entertainment. You're going to get hit. I'm glad he got in a shot. Uh, whatever. When it came down to it, I think Floyd was like, you know what? I'm ready to be done here. And in round six, you could tell he picked up the pace. He put a little bit more steam on the shots. He backed them up. He threw a couple of body shots, threw a couple of head shots. And after putting together a combination, three, four punches, 
uh, with with certainly more intent on them than they had been earlier. Uh, Kenny Bayless, who was the referee for the fight, who frankly seems like he's like Ben Mayweather's personal referee for all these exhibitions because he's been in the ring for most of them. Right. Uh, you know, Kenny stepped in and stopped the fight. And that was that. So it, it wasn't all that enjoyable. I, I must say I was not personally entertained by it. I have never had a problem with Floyd doing these kinds of events. If someone wants to pay him a bag to go do this kind of nonsense, good for him. Um, but I, I'm, I'm pretty much kind of done with it at this point. I mean, I'll still do it because I have that's that's what I do. But I do it with less enthusiasm now than I did at the beginning. Yeah, and and I've shared this with you too. You're just running around on a cash grab. I think at this point, he's got his legacy, he's got what he's got, and now I got no the, problem with the cash grab. I understand, I, mean, I understand, but he supposedly made all of this other money. I, I don't know what we're doing here. But if he, but you if have he enjoys, your opinion, I have mine. If whatever. he enjoys doing it, and somebody's willing to pay him, and he's not going to get himself in harm's way. He should do it until he's 90 if he wants to. You know what? The but bottom, it doesn't mean we have to be interested. Is the there. Point. Thank you. There's the other thing. And then when the and, money and dries up, this, this is not when Floyd's the money fault. dries up because of that factor, then he won't do it anymore. This is not Floyd's fault. So I'm not blaming Floyd at all whatsoever. As I've said, I wholeheartedly, if he can make these events and get that money, go do it. It was an absolutely unwatchable broadcast. Horrific. Terrible. Mm. They, needed us. they needed us. To help. Oh, my God. They needed like, I mean, my son, who's nine, could talk better. <laughs> I mean, it was just an absolutely horrendous broadcast from top to bottom. Uh, delays and just the, the constant talking to the broadcasters talking over each other nonstop. It was a disastrous mess. Very poor job. Uh, okay. And I mean, and I'm not to get uh, belabor the point, but Tommy Fury was supposed to box Paul Bamba on the undercard in a light heavyweight fight. I saw the blurb. He missed weight. What happened? No, no. Here's the thing. They claim that Paul, ba you know, Paul Bamba, who, who actually called me from uh, UAE on, on Sunday to, to give me his side of the story. I, you know, he got his, my number from uh, his agent, uh, who I've known for a long time. In any event, he made his contract weight. The contract weight, I believe, was 175 pounds. You have to translate it from kilos, which is what the contract said, but it's 175 pounds, light heavyweight. He made the weight. Apparently, the weight that was in the contract that Tommy Fury signed was a heavier weight, which I've never heard of before happening. If you sign a contract, you know, unless it's one of these wacky exhibitions, you know, guys are making the same weight, whatever it is. Um, so they tried to negotiate, you know, because because Fury was now going to be like, I don't know, eight pounds heavier than him or something like that, which is significant in, in, in that type of situation. And they they wouldn't negotiate a deal. I mean, in, in normal boxing, if a guy's overweight, you negotiate a financial penalty and the fight goes on. Now the Tommy Fury side would contend apparently that there was no, I wasn't overweight. I signed, I did what my contract says, but at the end of the day, the promoters still want the, the fight to happen. So there should be some situation where you work things out, even if the promoters got to pay for it, as opposed to out of the purse from the other fighter. But instead of doing that, not only did they, did they not give uh, Bamba any kind of compensation and have the fight go forward? They somehow had somebody available on the last second notice who ended up fighting Tommy Fury in what was now an exhibition instead of an official fight. And all that said, they kicked Paul Bamba out of the hotel. They canceled this fight. He called me. He's like, I'm stranded in the UAE, and he's got to pay his own way back to America. I mean, <laughs> the way that the people at Global Titans, who is the promoter oh, of this fight, wow. and if they're listening to this podcast, you're terrible people, horrible people. That's not the way you treat people. And for them, and can I interject? Where's Floyd Mayweather? Disgrace. Where's Floyd Mayweather in this? Who's made all this money? He's the headliner. Why is he not helping solve some of this? I realize it's not his specific problem and issue, but if if I if I'm Floyd and I hear this that one of the guys on the card is stranded there because they canceled the fight on him, I help take care of that. That would be just me. That would just I mean, be listen, me to help him get out of the. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not. Look, you can. We can. We can piss and moan about a lot of things related to Floyd Mayweather. I'm not going to give him grief on this because honestly. He, I don't even know if he knows about it, to be honest. He's, okay. he's worried about the main event. He's doing his thing. So I'm not I'm not going there. On, on so they canceled the fight and they stranded Bamba, your guy. And so yeah. and I don't, is... I still, I'm going to check later. I'm going to see if, if, he, if he got a flight or if he got out. Because, by he the way, have, he should have gotten to Munich. He could have gotten back to the United States if he needed to on the Buccaneer charter with oh us from Munich. So they just handle it very poorly. So I felt like, you know, good for Floyd if he can get the money and all that. But you know what? It was a it was a shitty event from that standpoint in terms of the way they treat the people, and uh, you know Paul Bama's the guy he was making like he was supposed to make I want to say sixty grand for the fight against Fury, which for him is uh, multiples of a zillion times what he's ever made. That's an opportunity, and uh, they fucked him, and that's all there is to it. Wow.
All right. So there's the wrap up to that uh, for this weekend. Just a few minutes left because I'm getting punchy. I'm getting delirious here, but it's okay. We're going to get the podcast wrapped up here for the audience. There was some news. There's an update uh, now on the uh, the canceled fight uh, from before. It's, it's the Julio Cesar Martinez uh, bout oh, yeah, with Arroyo, yeah. McWilliams Arroyo. There's an update on new opponents. There's an update on Philip Hergovich. And maybe is he going to be the guy that Alexander Usyk has to fight next or Usyk has to vacate the IBF belt? Give me some news of the week to wrap us up, Dan. All right, so in terms of Martinez, as we discussed previously on the podcast, he was supposed to have the rematch with McMillian's Arroyo. Uh, he is, of course, uh, the interim champion. Martinez is the full champion of the WBC in the flyweight division. They had a wild fight last year. Uh, rematch was ordered. It's been postponed several times and now postponed again because Arroyo uh, had some kind of backslash neck injury that is going to prevent him from being in the co-feature against uh, Martinez on December 3rd, which is the card that is headlined by uh, the fight I'm super excited for, the third fight between Juan Francisco Estrada and Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez. So anyway, he's out of the fight. Um, it was a mandatory, but obviously if he can't fight, they're allowing him to have an optional defense. So they got a new opponent, and the new opponent is a fighter named Samuel Carmona, who is not a well-known fighter in the pros. He's 8-0 with four knockouts. He is from Spain. He was a 2016 Olympic quarterfinalist, so he has that amateur pedigree. Anyway, so he'll fill in, and that'll be the co-feature on the DAZN matchroom card December 3rd. Uh, in Glendale, Arizona, uh, with a fantastic main event between Estrada and Gonzalez. And uh, the other thing you mentioned about uh, uh, Hergovich and, uh, and Alexander Usyk, during an interview on the DAZN broadcast with, with uh, Spark and, Mon and a Montana Love main event, uh, Claudia Treos, who was doing the interviews and reporting on that show, she interviewed Eddie, who broke the news that they had received a letter from the IBF ordering Usyk to fight the mandatory Philip Her Hergovich next. Normally, that wouldn't be a big deal, you know, just be another mandatory heavyweight title defense. The problem is it's got a good chance to waylay the prospect of the next fight for Usek being for the undisputed title against Tyson Fury. So Fury is fighting December the 3rd in the third fight with Chisora while Usek was taking the rest of the year off. But the thought from everybody involved on both sides was, OK, Fury will do the Chisora fight, probably take care of business there pretty handily. And then uh, we're going to make our match final, uh, you know, finalize the deal and it'll be Usyk versus uh, versus uh, Fury for the undisputed title come whenever, March, April of next year. Well, if the IBF is going to force the Hergovich fight on him right away, uh, that won't happen because Usyk's stated goal is undisputed. So I don't think he's going to give up the IBF title because if you give it up and you fight Fury, it's not undisputed because you're still missing one of the belts. And so Hearn said that they were ordered to do the fight. He represents as a co-promoter uh, Hergovich, and they said we're not even, we don't even want to wait for uh, to, to, do a, to do a negotiation because under these rules you can one side or the other can seek an immediate purse but he says they're going to go for the immediate purse bid uh which would you know Usyk and Hergovich is a good fight I'm not knocking the fight but it's not undisputed and uh Hergovich is the mandatory he beat Zhang Zilai the Chinese heavyweight on the undercard of the of the Fury uh uh not Fury of Joshua and Usyk too right that took place in August he earned that mandatory position and now the IBF which is the one organization that that follows the, the letter of their law uh, it's moments like this where sometimes you wish they didn't, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I just, you know, it, it's, there's always something that fucks up these big fights. It seems like, like there seemed to be a clear path to making Usyk against Fury. They could have done it this year. You know, Usyk decided he didn't want to fight. And so and partly it will be his fault how they get around this. The only way that this doesn't happen is if Hergovich gives his blessing and steps aside, which, you know, anything is possible. If they pay him enough money, he'll probably right. Would. But at the moment, they're playing hardball and Hearns saying we're not stepping aside. You know, as the co-promoter, he promotes him with Wasserman Boxing. We want to go to an immediate purse bid. And again, I got no problem with seeing Usyk versus Hurovich, but please uh, give me a break. I'd rather see Usyk versus Tyson Fury like basically, I don't know, 100% of every other boxing fan in the world. I agree with you. Uh, we'll see if the step aside money gets paid or what happens. Would Usyk fight him? Not likely. Instead of fighting Fury, why take the risk? There's nothing really in that for. Yeah. Plus, Usyk's Usyk. not going to give up the belt. That makes no yeah. sense for him. That's not. Yeah. That's the whole purpose of him getting the fight with Joshua was to get the three belts to put him All one right. step closer to undisputed. I'm with you on that. Anything else? Are we good here? We've gone through the full recaps from everything from Vegas uh, to Cleveland to the UK to the UAE. And again, I even had some excellent pork schnitzel in Munich, Germany while we were all about this. I just thought I would throw that in there because I'm punchy at this point. I had that on Saturday night before the big uh, Buccaneer game. I will tell you this. Uh, that was some scene 
the the European fans with the singing, the chant is some scene at the Buccaneer game again in Germany, first ever game with the Seahawks. Uh, and the atmosphere's over there. You've covered it. It's just a different breed of fan with the singing, the chanting, the cheering. I'm watching a German Bundesliga soccer game involving Bayern Munich. They were playing on the road because we were playing in their stadium. They're playing Saturday. I think you pronounce it Schalke. It might be Schalke, S-C-H-A-L-K-E, however you pronounce it. They're playing a road game at their place. The place is packed. They're singing and cheering and chanting in Germany. Then they started lighting the flares in the upper level in the second half of the game. They got the flares lit with the flags waving in the upper level. It is just different in Europe and the UK. I thought I would share that while we're recapping things, Dan, and recapping on the podcast. I've experienced that in terms of like big British fights. Whether they whether they're fights I've been to in the UK or fights that have drawn big British crowds to the United States, like with Lennox Lewis, Ricky Hatton, Joel Calzaghe, Prince Nassim, etc. Uh, and so I know that. And then and also I can have you know the memories of the those types of uh, jubilant crowds with the air horns and the singing. Mm-hmm. That was something that was prevalent at Tito Trinidad fights, where Puerto Rican fans, mm-hmm. especially in New York City, would come and just cheer wildly. I and uh, the night that he fought William Joppy and won the WBA middleweight title was. I say this forever, one of the, if not the greatest atmosphere I've ever been in for a fight, I can still in my mind's eye hear those air horns going off uh, inside the Madison Square Garden. That was extraordinary. And so I, I'm not uh, I'm not at all surprised to hear you talk about those atmospheres for those soccer games the, the that you saw in Germany. And when Fury fights Chisora, as much as we might think, I mean, that is <clears throat> oh, going to be an yeah. event with the singing, the sweet Caroline, the fans, the chants. It is different. Uh, in all facets of different sections of fans, a garden crowd is different than that crowd. A Vegas crowd for Canelo with the mariachi band is different. It's just different in different the, parts. The, the fights I, I have covered in the UK, every single one of them, I would put in near the you know in that upper echelon of the atmospheres of crowds I've been in. Whether it was Canelo, out, I mean um, Gennady Golovkin against Kel Brook or Klitschko versus Joshua at Wembley with mm-hmm. 90,000, or even a fight that people wouldn't really think about as being that mega of a fight. It wasn't in a big arena. Uh, I was there in Nottingham, England, when Carl Froch knocked out Luchin Bute to uh, become a, to win another super middleweight title as the underdog in his hometown. And it was like an, I don't know, like an eight or 9,000 seat arena in downtown Nottingham. And it was an extraordinary atmosphere. If, they, if you tell me there was 8,000 sold out, it sounded like it was 80,000. So I hear you about those atmospheres. Uh, you know, the American fight fans could uh, could take a cue. No doubt. I think we should take a cue. Yes, sir. Get out of here for another edition of the Fight Freaks Unite podcast. Dan Rayfield, thank you as always. We'll be reading you this week on your Substack as our content partner on BigFightWeekend.com. Preview podcast coming Friday on this feed. Thank you for all the recap info and intel. I'm glad to be back on the North American continent and in Florida and get to do this with you. We rock on this week. Thank you, Dan. Yes, sir. Have a good week, my man. And we thank all of you for listening as well. Make sure you're following, subscribing, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. On this very feed, we come off the weekend with the Fight Freaks Unite recap podcast. For Dan Rayfield, I'm TJ Reeves. Bye.